Time for another great podcast from ICRT. But first, a message from one of our outstanding partners. Don't forget, more information and fun on the ICRT app or at icrt.com.tw. ICRT, listen with the world. Now open. Texas Roadhouse is bringing Taichung residents its delicious, juicy steaks and barbecue ribs. Located on Shizhong Road, Texas Roadhouse is looking forward to serving up legendary food, legendary service, and legendary fun. 美味的手工鮮切牛排,10月5日登陸台中,德州鮮切牛排台中店,位在西屯區市政路581-6號,傳奇性的美式風味,等你來嘗鮮。We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio today by New Bloom's Brian Hugh. Good evening. And on the telephone from Taichung by Donovan Smith. Hey, good evening. Tonight on the agenda, we have the US-Taiwan Defense Industry Conference, opposition to the government's finalizing of visa-free entry for Philippine passport holders, foreign white-collar workers getting a better deal, how Catalonia's independence referendum is being viewed here in Taiwan, and charges that two of Taiwan's largest computer manufacturers are ignoring sustainability. But we'll begin with events in Beijing this week and the 19th Communist Party Congress, when China's President Xi Jinping made the Taiwan issue part of his opening address and he echoed countless previous statements espousing defence of and adherence to the One China Principle and the 1992 consensus as being the sole basis for cross-strait ties. Xi also reiterated that Beijing will deal with changes in Taiwan's situation and will oppose any moves towards Taiwan independence while at the same time seeking to attract more Taiwan businesses, students and entrepreneurs to the country. Here in Taiwan Taiwan, meanwhile, the government reiterated calls for the establishment of a new model for bilateral ties and lay a long-lasting foundation for peace in the region. And it also said that Beijing's advocacy of the One China Principle and the One Country, Two Systems formula will have major trouble winning over the hearts and minds of a majority of the people here. And I spoke with former Taiwan Foreign Correspondents Club President Jane Rickards about the Congress and what was said both in Beijing and here in Taipei. Good evening, Jane. Good evening, Gavin. So, you obviously watched the Congress opening speech on Wednesday. What did you take away from Xi Jinping's comments about Taiwan? Um, I think that Xi Jinping's remarks in the opening speech of the National Party Congress in China revealed that cross-strait relations are basically on autopilot. I don't think he said anything new. It was all standard stuff. For example, um, at the 18th Party Congress, that's the previous Party Congress, the 1992 consensus, that's the consensus that the KMT and China allege was reached in 1992, that both sides are allowed to agree they're part of China but may disagree on the meaning. The 1992 consensus was actually codified at the 18th Party Congress. Right. And, of course, he once again came down and said he'll, that China will clamp down on Taiwan independence separatists, because they love the word separatists, of course. Yes, I know, but I, I still think that's fairly standard. I don't think that was what he said was particularly aggressive or inflammatory. It's what China's been saying for the last decade or more. Um, I, don't, I didn't read anything particularly aggressive or anything new directed at Taiwan in those remarks. And what about Taiwan's comeback to this when they basically said they're still, they're, obviously the Thai administration is still 
promoting its so-called new model for bilateral ties. And it came out and said that China should probably think about this so-called new model. Do you see Beijing moving in this direction or not at all? Not at all. I think the fact that cross-strait relations are on autopilot, I think that indicates that Taiwan is not a very high foreign policy priority for Xi Jinping. And if you actually look at the content of his remarks, he was mainly focusing on Chinese domestic reforms. Um, I, I believe there are some hopes in the government that Xi Jinping may be more flexible and open towards Taiwan after the Congress. Um, the argument sort of went that before the Congress, Xi Jinping had to take a very tough line. But after the Congress, when he's kind of solidified his power base and re-established himself, he may have room to be more flexible. I think that's a vain hope. I think China's bottom line is that Taiwan is part of China. Um, and I don't think he's going to compromise on that. Do you think so the... Sorry. Yep. Do you think the flexibility that you talked about could yes. mean that Chinese officials could once again resume talks with Taiwan officials? Um, I think that that will be very difficult if the Tsai administration refuses to accept any notion that Taiwan is part of China. Um, scholars very close to the Chinese government have actually told me that they actually are open to a new formula other than the 1992 consensus. However, one China is the bottom line, and that can't be compromised. And I think that China's going to continue with that path. And I also think that the Tsai administration has gone as far towards this as it possibly can in President Tsai's inauguration speech in May last year. And this has still proved to be unacceptable to China. For example, Tsai referred to a series of meetings in 1992, as you know, and she said that there were a few understandings and so on and so forth. Um, now, that's not good enough for China. I think that's as far as saying when can go. So I think that in future, cross-strait relations will, will remain deadlocked. They'll be in stalemate. And I think it's very possible that the Tsai administration will put forward a new model. I think it's very likely that she'll make a new proposal at the end of this month. But I personally don't see a breakthrough. So, Brian, do you agree there with Jane? I think it's more or less right, because, you know, nothing new came out of this Congress so far as we've seen. You know, it's just kind of started. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's still a question whether China will try to increase pressure or whether China will stick to what it's been doing. You know, for example, people wonder about the Li Mingzhou case as whether that's China throwing a curveball to the equation. Um, but, you know, that mystery existed before the Congress, and I think that it will exist after the Congress. And so there hasn't been, like, a new policy or, you know, plan set out that's been presented in this Congress thus far. Um, on the other hand, you know, I think that maybe after the Congress, it will become more clear if these changes will happen. Because, you know, again, as, as was mentioned, there was all this talk about, you know, sea consolidating power. And then after that, maybe being able to more free to pursue a, a new, you know, change in policy. That that remains to be seen. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I agree with Brian, with, with what Brian's been saying. Um, but there, that there's a lot of we don't know what's going to happen yet. Uh, obviously, once she's consolidated his power, then what happens next? And really, nobody knows. But I've noticed that there's been a telegraphing of something new. I, I feel like I, I keep reading uh, some of the vocabulary. And what's what I found interesting is that there seems to be a word ability or capability that's a word that, that keeps jumping up that, that I noticed it started about two, three weeks ago in uh, the Global Times. 
And I've noticed that a lot of what she's been doing recently has been telegraphed from, from the Global Times. Now, here's uh, from uh, two, three weeks ago in the Global Times. The central government, referring to China's government, is capable of deciding the boundary of its Taiwan policy, regulating the DPP administration, and preventing Tsai from crossing the line. What he announced uh, online, now keep in mind that uh, capability and ability uh, are very similar in Chinese. Um, Xi Jinping said uh, on Wednesday that the CCP, sorry, the Communist Party of China, has the resolve, confidence, and ability to defeat separatist attempts for Taiwan independence in any form. Now, most of the vocabulary is boilerplate than what we've seen before, but using the word capability and ability to me seems a slightly, it, it's a little bit more assertive and more specific, and it's something we haven't seen much of before. And, of course, there was a Taiwanese woman, or a woman that was born in Taiwan, in Kaohsiung. Um, her name was Lu Li An, I believe, Brian. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of unusual, because, you know, they always do have these Taiwanese representatives at these big meetings that are, you know, descendants of people from Taiwan, and they're born in China, and, you know, they don't actually have connections to Taiwan today, but they, you know appear as though they at these these big meetings as though you know Taiwan has representation and is part of China. And this is unusual because you know it is a woman that is from Taiwan, that is born in Taiwan that went over. Um, I wonder what there will be reactions going forward because you know there's all this controversy again about military officials, retired military officials going to China to meet with Chinese officials. Um, that that's unusual. Um, yeah, and I think going back to what Donovan said, you know, China still wants to present the image of Taiwan being part of China and that it can take Taiwan at any time. And so you know, it's like a psychological warfare thing, but we'll see if this will, you know, these claims will ramp up. I don't see China actually having the military ability to take Taiwan, you know, changing anytime soon in the next few years. Yeah, I, I think Brian's right, but I think right, really right now what, what, what really kind of concerns me, and, and, I, and frankly, it, we, we just don't know what's going to happen next. I mean, now Xi Jinping thought he's elevated himself up to the level of Mao Zedong uh, thought. Uh, which is a major, major shift in, in China policies. Essentially, Xi Jinping has now elevated himself up to the level of Mao Zedong. And there's kind of a, the, the big question, and he's been consolidating his power for these years, and now essentially he's locked it down with this, with this uh, Congress. So what that means is, is that he now has much more power, much more ability, to move things in whatever direction he wants, which we don't know. So some people are saying that he may move to, to a more flexible thing. I, what Jane noted in, in her segment there is that she thinks that some that uh, the government there that some in the government there think that they'll move to they may be more flexible. They may move to a, move to a new paradigm, uh, moving away from the 1992 consensus. But the problem is is that a leader that is solely devoted himself to consolidating power, and so much of it rests on nationalism and removing what they consider the hundred years of humiliation, and somebody who is now obviously so concerned about his own power and so concerned now presumably about his legacy, is he going to start moving in a direction of putting increasing pressure on Taiwan, which is very possible. And keep in mind, this is somebody who now obviously views consolidating his own power, his own paramount concern. So is he a megalomaniac? We don't know yet. So I think really what we're going to see over the next year or two is 
how is he going to start implementing this ability or capability that he's been telegraphing? Um, I think that yeah, C definitely needs to pursue some kind of legacy goal because you know compared to Mao and Deng, he you know his thought is elevated now, but he hasn't done anything to be as iconic as these leaders. You know Mao is Mao. There's you know no China today without Mao and Deng. You know the, the economic reforms associated with him. C hasn't done anything actually. You know that big that paradigm shifting. So he needs some legacy that could prove dangerous. Um, on the other hand, I do think that you know China has a lot of domestic issues which it has to take care of right now. But the fact that is so and that you know Taiwan is probably not the highest on their list of priorities that also doesn't mean that. Ta- China won't put more pressure on Taiwan anyway. So I think you know we have to be careful to remember that these things are not mutually exclusive. Right, and we have to move on there and on to the 2017 U.S.-Taiwan Defense Industry Conference, which took place in Princeton, New Jersey this week. And Deputy Defense Minister General Zhang Guanchun told delegates to the event that the Thai administration believes that a review of U.S. export controls could help Taiwan boost its own domestic arms efforts, while U.S.-Taiwan Business Council President Rupert Hammond Chambers and the head of the Taiwan Business Industry Association Han B. Shang signed a memorandum of understanding following the conference, and Han said that the agreement is aimed at advancing U.S. defense cooperation with Taiwan by establishing a platform to make it easier for the island's defense contractors to carry out exchanges with their U.S. counterparts. While Hammond Chambers says that the MOU is an initiative that has been in the making since President Tsai Ing-wen was elected in 2016, and it seeks to accelerate integration between Taiwan and U.S. defense industrial bases. Hammond Chambers also said that the program could help Taiwan step up its global defense industry export opportunities. What did you take away from it? Um, I feel like with these conferences, which you know happen regularly, there's almost no way that you know they're going to come out of it and say like, oh yeah, you know we decided actually uh, not to sell, you know, like or not to build ties with Taiwan. We actually are backing away from this. So you know, it's something intended to reassure that you know the status quo still exists. Um, I don't think anything game changing happened out of that because you know that that does actually seem to be to me to be mostly boilerplate talk. Um, you know, there's this emphasis on building the indigenous defense industry, which you know you hear about. For like forever, and whether that will actually you know get done, that that remains to be seen. Um, on the other hand, you know the indigenous defense industry, the parts and so forth, are you know usually from outside of Taiwan, and so that's that is still there as a question. And you know there's no game changer or thing you know like a there's no game changing arm sale that will you know shift the balance of power that's coming anytime soon. Yeah, well, I think uh, I, I think Brian's right. I don't think any one thing out of this. I mean, obviously the agreement signed is is semi is somewhat significant possibly we don't really know but uh it seems it seems to me that recently there's been a lot of baby steps toward a greater uh integration and more uh more interaction between the US and and Taiwan this seems to be one of them there there's been more invitation you know potential invitation of Taiwanese officials there's been more uh recent activity involving Taiwanese uh, military people, of obviously the U.S. Congress is talking about now trying to get the administration. It's not uh, obviously it's not a firm commitment, but uh, to that that the that the administrative branch should allow more Taiwanese uh, to visit. Now, this specifically could be important in the sense that uh, obviously with the Taiwanese defense, uh, recently they declared that they wanted to have a a much stronger indigenous. Uh, the defense industry, obviously, with the submarines and the trainer jets, and they're going to need the support of uh, U.S. technical. Uh, they're going to need U.S. technical expertise for some of that, and so this could help pave the way for it. But in and of itself, the agreement it seems to be a little bit vague. 
it's kind of a mystery to me what's going on with the uh, you know U.S. State, State Department under Trump, though, because you know, like for example, Trump is going to visit Asia relatively soon, and so we'll see what happens after that. Um, and you know, there's been long talk, which was I think mentioned at the conference, that you know the State Department doesn't actually have enough people staffing it right now to handle arms sales. So I, it's hard to judge from the outside. I think that you know it's hard to know you know in this vacuum, you know, whether there's increased cooperation or you know this is attempts to kind of you know. To make it seem as though everything is normal and you know things behind the scenes are kind of you know in chaos, I think it's very hard to judge from the outside. Yeah, I, I, I think Brian's right, I, um, but again, I, I really think this is all about baby steps. Uh, it, it seems to be that inside both the U.S. Congress and within uh, within the administration, at a lower level, not necessarily involving Trump, there seems to be a movement toward quietly and in small ways. Uh, integrating Taiwan in a little bit more, as, as much as like we're seeing a, a little bit more visibly out of Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's possible. I think the the State Department is kind of going off and doing its own thing right now under Rex Tillerson, and you know, as you see that very visibly in the conflict between him and Trump. So you know, we'll see kind of which contesting power wins out within the U.S. government. I feel like. Right. And the government here in Taiwan this week announced that Philippine passport holders will be given a visa-free entry to the island for up to 14 days for a trial period from November the 1st. Now, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs says the trial is aimed at attracting Philippine visitors to Taiwan for both tourism and business purposes. And, of course, that's pretty much in line with the government's new southbound policy. Now, the move hasn't pleased everybody, though, with some saying the decision to grant holders of passports from Southeast Asian countries visa-free entry is opening the door to criminal elements and undesirables. One of Taiwan's mainstream daily newspapers ran a headline this week that screamed, visa-free programs leave borders unguarded. And that was based on concern that increasing number of visitors from Southeast Asian countries to Taiwan who come in with the visa-free privilege system, and they're engaging in criminal activities such as prostitution and fraud here. So, Brian, I mean, visa-free programs leave borders unguarded. Was that maybe a bit of an overstatement by the China Times? I mean, it's not surprising that there's this kind of, you know, xenophobic reaction. I think that, you know, we see discrimination against Southeast Asian people in in Taiwan regularly. I mean, just, you know, whether with domestic workers or any other kind of worker or even, you know, tourists that are on the streets, that's a big issue. Um, So it's actually actually a little surprising to me that this kind of, you know, flare-up of of anxiety regarding the new southbound policy, which is aimed at you know building stronger political and economic ties with Southeast Asian countries, I'm surprised that that actually didn't provoke a reaction beforehand. You know, along these kind of you know uh, racial lines, and so I think that you know now it's 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 a visa thing. You know that that provokes this you know anxiety. You know, not surprising that you know when they're coming here, you know, you're afraid that you know they'll fill up the vacuum of Chinese tourists and you know become something disruptive. But there's this fear of you know Southeast Asians, which you see in you know. For example, the shooting of the uh, Vietnamese migrant worker um, several weeks ago. And so, you know, it's not too surprising to me that there's react- this reaction, although it is disappointing. Yeah, uh, it, it's something that I noticed uh, uh, recently is they, they, they were trumpeting and talking about how they were going to crack down on, I believe it's specifically Thailand. They said there were some people using the visa program to... Uh, uh, to bring in prostitutes. However, if you actually looked at the numbers, it was like one or two dozen. You know, they trumpeted this huge, massive percentage increase, but it was from basically almost nothing to one or two dozen people. It was a really kind of a minor uh, number. Uh, now, of course, a big part of what, what people are complaining about here with the Philippines is specifically that the Philippines has not uh, allowed Taiwanese in 
uh, visa-free. However, the Philippines is now considering cutting visa fees and extending the length of validity of some of its multiple entry visas. So essentially, Taiwan is opening up uh, to the Philippines, but the Philippines is not really reciprocating. I mean, it's one of those, uh, you know, right now the, the situation with the Philippines is uh, very tenuous because, you know, there's the, the fact that, you know, Duterte mentioned that, you know, Taiwan is a site of drug trafficking and he blamed specifically the Bamboo Union. And, you know, there's also the question of the Philippines' relation with China. And, you know, so Taiwan is, is you know, somewhere caught in between. And so, you know, Taiwan would obviously like to build greater ties with the Philippines in order to... Um, you know, for the sake of the new southbound policy. Um, at the same time, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to judge because, you know, sometimes what the Philippines, uh, you know, uh, says diplomatically seems to differ from, you know, the rhetoric of the president. And, you know, there's also the, the fact that, you know, that what go, is going on with the current situation in the Philippines, you know, leaves a lot of time and he's very wary of a country they see as dangerous and unstable. So I think those are all contributing factors. Donovan. Yeah, no, I mean, what Brian says is correct. I mean, they, they delayed uh, putting in the, the, the visa-free entry for uh, the Philippines. Originally, they'd slated to have it months ago. Uh, but once the violence broke out uh, in the south uh, with Islamic militants taking over several areas, they uh, delayed it uh, until they believed that the situation was under control. So they were in, uh, concerned about that. Um, but again, yeah, it seems to be the big, the, the big concern for a lot of people here outside of the, the importing, like the, you know, the more xenophobic elements concerned about bringing in crime or uh, terrorists. Uh, is also that the Philippines doesn't seem to be reciprocating. Right. And there we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we'll begin the second half of the show with lawmakers this Thursday passing an initial review of a bill aimed at drawing more foreign white-collar workers to Taiwan. The Draft Act for the Recruitment and Employment of Foreign Professional Talent eases regulations for visas, work permits, taxes, insurance, pensions, and offers residency for family members. And it looks good for foreign white-collar professionals seeking employment here. It extends the current maximum term for work and residence permits to five years, it removes requirements that foreign white-collar workers must remain in Taiwan for 183 days per year in order to maintain their residence status, and it includes them in the labour pension system, while it also allows their spouses, their children to apply for permanent residency, which of course has been a long issue. However, as with the Philippine visa-free system, it's not making everybody happy, as the National Development Council has rejected calls to put a cap on the number of white-collar foreign workers allowed to, well, work here. And civic groups voiced their concerns ahead of the bill's review this week, arguing that a cap should be put on the number of white-collar foreign workers in order to protect local workers. So, Donovan, do you think this is just paranoia here? Yes. Uh, I mean, the, the talk of a cap, frankly, the talk of a cap is not going to really go anywhere because the number of people interested in coming to work, these, these uh, improvements are really, uh, th- these improvements primarily are targeted at foreigners who are already here. So, I, you know, I don't see that these, they're, they're essentially tinkering around the edges of this, making slight improvements. It's, again, using the term I used earlier, baby steps. Uh, and this is the way it's always worked when dealing with foreigners in Taiwan. The government doesn't make big leaps. They always make baby steps. And they make incremental improvements. 
And so when they talk about this, you know, the the, the opponents were talking about, oh, they're worried about a flood of uh, foreigners coming in. And that's just simply not going to happen. The people who are, the, the improvements that they've made are primarily targeted at foreigners who are already here and foreigners who already know foreigners who are here, such as the 183-day uh, term or having uh, children or wives uh, or husbands or spouses or, you know, all these uh, these people were allowed to come in on the health insurance without the six-month wait. These are primarily issues that resident uh, uh, resident foreign foreigners have expressed concerns about. These are not the kind of things that most foreigners are considering coming here would even know about to be concerned about. Mm. Um, I mean, my view is that, you know, on two, Taiwan has two dilemmas. One is attracting foreign talent as difficulties doing that. And the other is as a severe brain drain problem, which is, you know, retaining local talent. And so, you know, the justification raised for these caps is that, you know, you want to prevent brain drain. You want to retain Taiwanese local talent and not have an influx of foreign talent. But, you know, it, it's just one of those things that, you know, why don't you improve the conditions overall? And so you can do both, you know, attract foreign talent and retain local talent. And, you know, that that's the question that I wonder why that's not being asked. Um, immigration caps do exist for a number of countries. I mean, it's also true of, of the U.S. and, you know, other, you know, major countries. So it's not unusual, but, you know, generally, um, it, it leads to a difficulty in which every country has this, you know, difficulty retaining uh, or attracting, you know, foreign talent. And this is true of the U.S. or any other country that has the system. And so, you know... I wonder, I wonder how that, you know, that, that, that doesn't come up in the discourse, unfortunately. Right, Donovan, if you put your American chamber in Tai Jong hat on, what have your members been saying about this? Uh, not much. I mean, it's essentially the, the concerns that, that, that we have are some of the ones that are addressed here. I mean, obviously, we've had uh, a lot of cases where children uh, have been kind of abandoned by the system here. Some of them have grown up here, and then, all, uh, and then they can't stay. Uh, and then there are, you know, for example, uh, one famous uh, foreign resident here had a child, but because once the child is born, they, there's the restriction on they can only get the health insurance six months after they uh, after they've been in the country for six months. So there was a six month gap. Child was born prematurely, and there was no coverage for six months. So there was massive medical bills. So these are things that really are targeting existing foreigner complaints, not potential arrivals. Now, according to an article here I'm looking at, there's something like 17,000 foreign professional uh, technical workers. But uh, according to another article I read recently, there's something like 700,000 some odd Taiwanese leave the country every year to go work. So there's a huge brain drain problem. And Taiwan can't, can barely attract any uh, foreigners to come to work here. And I don't think it's going to fundamentally change that. They can put caps on it, but when you're, when they can only attract hundreds or low thousands at best per year under the current system, and even with the improvements that they put in, uh, the caps are pretty much almost meaningless. Because they also had this visa they'd be giving out for people that have recent graduates, I believe, who have graduated from university within the past two years, giving them some kind of search for a job visa. Yeah, they, they've given them a little bit of time. They've tightened that up a little bit, but they've also... Uh, and so that will help a little bit. Um, but the, the, they, they cut the ability for uh, foreigners to be interns here. Uh, there was concerns that they would come in and be essentially low-paid workers. Uh, there's a minimum uh, income requirement of 47000 some odd. 
And uh, if somebody wants to come in and search for a job here, uh, they need to meet that requirement. Uh, they also, they're a little bit less, uh, they're, they're tightened it up a little bit on university graduates coming out here locally. Um, essentially, uh, what happened is they proposed a bunch of things, and then they gave away a bunch of things to uh, the opposition so that in spite of the original plan being larger baby steps, it may, becomes even more smaller baby steps so that when people start raising complaints, they gave away certain things such as the internship, making it less easy for people to uh, search for jobs here and so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, there's these there's legal loopholes which exist within, I think, East Asian uh, immigration systems overall, you know, Taiwan or Japan or South Korea, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of massive. And it's surprising that there's not more discussion socially of, you know, correcting these, these uh, you know, imbalances. And so, you know, I think that it's very difficult to leverage on that. And, you know, this bill, I don't think that was widely discussed in society, which is, you know, surprising for all this talk of, you know, making Taiwan more international and so forth. Um, you know, what about the people that are already living here? Yeah, something very basic, for example, is if we're permanent resident holders, and they keep talking about doing it, but as far as I know, they're not doing it, making, for example, our uh, ID numbers compatible with local ID card numbers, uh, which would allow us to, for example, shop online for things. Very, 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 these are very basic mm-hmm. fundamental things, and they still aren't even addressing a lot of the things that that uh, local residents are concerned about. And none of these things, none of the changes they're talking about, are likely to be have much of an impact on bringing in, in spite of what they claim. They, they're claiming that they, they really want to attract more, uh, more foreign experts uh, to come into the country to address the brain drain. But they're, they're tinkering around the edges is really all they're doing. Right, and we move on here, and Catalonia's referendum for independence from Spain has been a topic of conversation here in Taiwan over the past couple of weeks, with some pro-Taiwan groups arguing that a similar ballot could serve as a means of achieving independence for the island. And I spoke about the issue with Alexander Gorlak, an affiliate professor at Harvard College, who is currently a visiting scholar at the National Taiwan University's College of Social Sciences. Good evening, Alexander. Good evening, Gavin. So, pro-Taiwan activists here on the island have expressed support for Catalonia and its referendum for independence from Spain. But just how similar, if at all, are the situations facing the two seemingly very different areas? Well, in, in, my, in my opinion, actually, the two cases are not related at all. If you look into Catalonia, which is a uh, part of Spain that, agreeably, with a constitutional referendum... Um, one generation ago, not even, uh, um, became part of the United Kingdom of Spain is uh, a quite different framework than uh, the one we know here in Taiwan. Right. I mean, obviously, some people have also said that a similar ballot here in Taiwan could actually achieve independence for the island. Obviously, I take it you don't agree with this. Oh, I mean, uh, there is a a general right of the people of Catalonia to, to pursue this. I mean, the the, uh, the ongoing and unfolding events of the, of the last period, however, indicate they wouldn't have gone a constitutional uh, kind of way. And Spain, as a, as a kingdom, as all liberal democracies in, in the Western Hemisphere, uphold the rule of law. Whereas we have here the uh, uh, between China, the mainland China, the People's Republic, and the Republic of China on Taiwan. I mean, for historical reasons, there is not such an 
a common mutual umbrella that would make the steps necessary for independence that would be the ones in the European context, let's say Scotland, for instance. Right, and have you spoken to people in Taiwan about the Catalonia referendum and what have they told you? Well, I guess, I guess the, uh, the question here for independence in, in Taiwan is, as you are more familiar with it as I am, is that you just have a new generation coming about who is not really buying into or accustomed to the narrative of uh, the one China, which then uh, plays out into the People's Republic and the Republic here in Taiwan. The younger people do not want to be like involved with this kind of narrative. Some even uh, to reject the flag and other symbols that come from the, the mainland era. And I and I guess that's uh, that's the main difference uh, in the also in the, in the Catalonian case where many many people identify as European and may have problems with the central government in uh, Madrid. Right. I mean, do you see such a referendum ever taking place in Taiwan, or do you think it's just a pipe dream for some people? Well, I I I'm very new to the region, and I would say that uh, two things. One is like. For China, and you have seen for the People's Republic of China, and you have seen this yesterday in in, in the speech of President Xi Jinping. Uh, um, there is no such thing as an independence ever for Taiwan, and I guess the most re- the main reason for that is that while he's going on and explaining to the world and his own citizens that uh, liberal democracy and being Chinese doesn't um, uh, doesn't go well together, and it's basically mutually exclusive. He has this island in front of the mainland who just lives a vital liberal democracy. And also, I mean, I would not be the only one who argues that the transition and uh, from a dictatorship to, uh, to a democracy went quite well in, in Taiwan. Also, if you compare uh, corruption levels and such, you would be see if you, if you see like civil and human rights, like the freedom of religion, you have a Taiwan as a total, uh, it's, a shining, it's a shining city on the hill, if you will. And that's and that's uh, that's one thing. So this is a, a constant threat to to uh, to, uh, to the People's Republic on an ideological level, and that may lead to some ir- irrational behavior on their end at some point. Uh, however, having said that, coming to the island, I think like that um, that this is a thing that uh, over time the younger generation will have to balance out their own interests and their uh, their love for their own identity and like the the big neighbor country. Uh, which they will be tied to historically uh, and also today socially and economically, uh, whether they like it or not. Right. I mean, do you think, I mean, a pipe dream they have a, that Taiwan has a referendum. Do you think such a referendum in Taiwan would garner any international support? I think the, uh, well, th- that's a very good question. And I think there is a lot of sympathy for Taiwan in, in the Western world, as, as we both know. I think what, um, what, Governments or also people in in the West would 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 like to see is a very smart and sort of prudent kind of behavior. So no rushing into things or or being too over provocative with China because that would also help and uh, not help Western powers to uh, be helpful and supportive. And I would say like in the next for the next generation, uh, and when you look into the Sunflower Movement and the people who who, who ran the show and who now made it also into Congress. I think uh, the next year should be shaped by gaining, um, by showing up on the international map. And uh, this has so many components from being uh, fluent in, in, in English and being interested in, in, in what happens in other liberal democracies from just being like, you know, in a, in a diplomatic sense going forward to see what is possible in, on an international stage. 
That was me in conversation with Harvard College affiliate professor Alexander Gorlack. And of course, Brian, you've written about this issue for New Bloom. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right. I mean, there's a you know discussion of whether to compare Catalonia and Taiwan, or whether those comparisons are possible. Um, you know, either way, there's always an uptick of interest in you know these other self-determination uh, you know issues in other countries. Whenever there's a referendum, talk of a referendum, or you know it comes up in the news in Catalonia, Scotland, or you know wherever. And so you know, it's always a question of there can be comparisons. I mean, you know. People always compare Hong Kong and Taiwan, but Hong Kong's situation is actually closer to Catalonia, in which you know the government is right there, and you're not actually de facto independent. And so, you know, if you make those comparisons, I think that you should also be able to make comparisons to Catalonia. Um, the real issue is that you know will they succeed? And you know it, it doesn't seem likely because the Spanish government does seem intent on coming in with you know police force and putting down Catalonia, whereas you know Taiwan is you know already separate from China, and that's not going to change in the in the in the in the near future. Well, of course, Alexander mentioned the fact that Taiwan probably wouldn't get any more support globally if it had a referendum. Mm-hmm. I think that's right, because, you know, I think that what you can definitely take away from this is what the effects of a referendum on, you know, independence is. Um, some, you know, referendums do attract global attention and become a cause celebrity and so forth. And, you know, then you will get global support. But as for Taiwan, I think probably not. I mean, you know, there's all this talk of Catalonia and all the sympathy. And if it even can't break away, then, you know, that's an issue. And then, you know, you think about, for example, a Kurdish referendum in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, which is, you know, also a similar situation. And, you know, that hasn't received international attention. And so, you know, that's the question of a referendum, which is proposed as a way to permanently settle the issue of independence and unification. Um, Will this actually attract global attention? It might not. And if the U.S. opposes it, which, you know, the U.S. did oppose the referendum in Iraqi Kurdistan, despite the fact that, you know, it supported Kurds um, for its own interests in the Middle East, um, it opposed the referendum very strongly. And so that might happen. It seems very likely to happen with Taiwan. And if that's the case, it seems very unlikely that international support would follow. Right. And before we go, Greenpeace this week blasted tech giants Samsung, Amazon and Huawei, as well as Taiwan's own Acer and Tech for failing to embrace sustainability. Now, Greenpeace evaluated the companies according to their performance in energy transformation, resource depletion and management of chemical materials. Now, according to the Greenpeace poll, Acer earned a D plus and Tech got a D. Now, none of the companies actually got A, I'll say that now. But Greenpeace did say that Acer's solar power plant in Taoyuan's Long Tan district did actually mean it got a D plus rather than D because apparently Acer said that it's going to cut carbon emissions. But of course there are still calls for these manufacturers to develop new industrial models and focus on sustainability. So Brian, do you buy a new smartphone every year? Uh, no, I don't. I try to go with whatever is, you know, what can be used in the long term. That's, you know, you know, I, I do need a smartphone for work and so forth. But, you know, um, it, seems to, it seems to be the crux of the Greenpeace argument here is these companies like Acer and Asutech, they develop new smartphones every year. Mm-hmm. And Joe Bo Public goes out and buys one. I think that's true. I think people are, you know, pretty, pretty preoccupied with technology in this, uh, you know, cult like manner. You know, you have to have the newest thing. It's a fashion. And it's also, you know, status simple and so forth. And, you know, that, that is something that companies play on because obviously they want to make money. Um, it's not surprising, though, that, you know, that there is industrial pollution from, uh, you know, these companies. I mean, there's this issue with uh, Taiwanese companies that, you know, they, they have a long standing record of trying to cut costs and, you know, not really thinking about what happens to the environment if that can mean saving a buck. And so, you know, that, that was, is what happens. And, you know, it's an absence of long term thinking of what will happen to Taiwan's ecology. Um, but, you know, with these companies, these big companies, you know, 
in those cases, they can always just go to another you know country and, and produce there and pollute someone else's country. Exactly, and so that's that's often the case, um, whether with Taiwanese companies or you know any other form of uh, transnational corporation. Yeah, sadly, too often the case. Anyway, Donovan, will you be rushing out and buying a new Acer or Asus Tech or even HTC phone and helping pollute the environment? Hopefully, dozens uh, when I can <laughs> afford it. Uh, I mean, Greenpeace is, is sort of obviously in the business of not giving good grades on this kind of thing because then they would put themselves out of business. Uh, I mean, Apple earned a B minus, and that's about as good as it got. Uh, the time, two Taiwanese companies that were included on the list, Acer and Asus, did actually kind of middling with their D and D plus. Uh, Amazon got an F, and Huawei got a D. Samsung a D minus. So you know, the Taiwanese companies within that context of essentially being set out to fail kind of came out as uh, came out as being kind of uh, middling in that their failing assessments um, now Acer got a, the D plus uh, for their efforts in reducing GHD emissions and resource consumption uh, it, now they noted that ASUS is unique according to their website is unique in publishing information about its suppliers however the company is not showing real leadership in renewable energy resource reduction or chemical elimination so the, within the context that they they were grading these two companies uh, kind of came out doing actually okay right what about the Taiwan mobile phone recycling um, yeah, I think that it's often the case that you know people just have ho- you know phones just sitting around at home and they pick up one every year and you know it just accumulates. Um, for this kind of culture of electronic recycling to you know it should be more developed in Taiwan. I think. I mean, you know, for a, century, for a country with such heavy consumption of electronics, I mean, that should be something that is much more encouraged by the government and the culture. But I don't really see that happening currently. And that's, no, the, yeah. the garbage truck has a place for batteries, plastic bottles. Glass bottles and food. Oh, there's no I mean, there's, of... there's no bin for cell phones. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Or computers, you know. So, Donovan, if you had an old cell phone, what do you do with it? Chuck it in a bin? Uh, yeah, probably. But uh, <laughs> I, I, essentially, I mean, right now, there actually uh, there was a piece written, written recently in Commonwealth that was talking about this. That uh, I mean, globally, when you look at actually a lot of the sources of a lot of like the rare earth minerals and these kinds of things that go into the cell phones. Uh, they come out of conflict zones, sort of like you know, blood diamonds and that sort of thing. So there's, there's actually a lot of human misery goes into certain components and elements that go into modern phones that aren't isn't really being talked about. Uh, however, the, on the plus side, and of course, obviously, there's swathes of uh, southern China in Guangdong that is that these industrial, you know, these cell phones and computers and electronics are basically dumped there. And then when they try and recycle them, a lot of the, there's massive toxic runoff that goes into the into the local environment. But they're getting better, better and better at recycling a lot of this stuff, which hopefully will uh, reduce a lot of that impact, uh, both in terms of sourcing it from uh, areas of essentially human slavery, uh, and also at the other end of the chain where it's it's. Uh, polluting, you know, going into the runoff and irrigation canals into uh, uh, into farmers' fields. So, um, you know, the the technology is improving on this, but there apparently seems to be a way to go, a ways to go yet. Right, and that's where we'll leave it with a ways to go on Taiwan This Week This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the telephone from Taichung, all the way in central Taiwan, down there in the centre, by Donovan Smith. Have a great evening.
And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.